Welcome to Conversations Matter. I'm Hans Hickler. And I'm Molly Burkholm. Molly and I are big fans of having real, deep conversations. So sit back, relax, be present, and really enjoy this one. Today we have a profound privilege of interviewing someone who is a true change maker, and dare I even say hero, and I don't use that word lightly. Allison Thompson is the founder of Third Wave Volunteers. She has been at just about every natural disaster, terrorist attack, you name it. She's been in war zones um, doing direct humanitarian relief with people who are affected by these situations. She is the first person on the ground together with her team of thousands of people around the world, but she herself goes there every time too. She shows up before even the Red Cross gets there a lot of the time, on the ground, bringing people what they need. And she sort of redefined volunteerism in this in this space. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, in a conversation with her, there is meaning in every little thing that people do during these crises. You know, whether you're putting peanut butter on a piece of bread, waiting to welcome refugees coming in by boat, it's just incredible how this product she has is a product of the heart. Yeah, absolutely. She feels that everyone can be a volunteer. She, No one is refused. If you want to help, you can get involved in Third Wave Volunteers, and I encourage you to do so. Getting involved will change the way you see the world and humanity, and you're going to get a taste of it today. Allison has a beautiful home that we're sitting in now. We're surrounded by art and artifacts from all over the world, sweet little memories. And I have this feeling that if I picked up anything in Allison's house, it would have a story attached to it. I want to know the story about the Albert Einstein and Salvador Dali chairs. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so, and Allison has, your whole life is a tapestry of stories of service and of love. Well, I deal with a lot of death and destruction out in the world as a humanitarian, <laughs> so when I come home, I want to bring things back to life, and that's why we have our garden, and we garden all weekend, I garden with my husband, and we really spend all day out there, and we try to find the romance in everything we do, so we'll put some jazz on, and and uh, we really relax, and uh, so this garden was destroyed in Irma out the back, but um, we've been working hard ever since to bring it back, and now it's looking good. But it's just our little sanctuary, you know, and... Uh, well, this is the time of year when you can enjoy it. It gets cools down here in, in Miami. You can really enjoy that yard. It's beautiful here. <laughs> and then the other little sanctuary is in the Bahamas, you know, like we race around the world, and you just get so busy, and I find that it's 11 years later, and I haven't had a holiday. So the Bahamas really taught me just to go and stop. It's not like going when you go to in, um, India or somewhere and you're always on the road. It's just sometimes you just have to go and stop. And, and we go to Treasure Cay in the Bahamas and we, I really learned to know just lie still, read a book. And that was hard for me at first, but that's really important. Uh, but now if people have heard about the Bahamas have been destroyed and it's catastrophic and it's in another little sanctuary area that's been destroyed. So we've been focusing on helping down there. Yeah, so Alison has just come back. She has been down um, at this point of recording. We're about a month out from the hurricane, just a little over from the horrible Hurricane Dorian that has totaled so much of the Bahamas. Um, And Alison, you were there the day after, right? I mean, you were there immediately. Yeah. It was just, it's devastating because I usually go off to a disaster, but I'm not attached to it. So it was 
really strange to be so attached to it. And, and Albert, my husband's been going there since he was six and has had homes there and they're all gone and everything's just gone. And, uh, so my heart is really connected to it and, uh, we're, we're, we're ready to stay there long term to help with the recovery. Not just the immediate aid, but we've got a lot of sustainable programs that we're doing. It's really there. interesting. I was watching your, your TED talk and, uh, I felt so much empathy and compassion for all these different disasters. But there is something when you have a personal relationship. Like, you know, my first job was in the, in the World Trade Center. I, I can't think of that disaster, you know, that tragedy without it hitting my heart in a special way. The Bahamas as well. I have a lot of fond memories. I, I know those islands. We vacationed there. It's part of you know, it's part of history, the, you know, the tsunamis in Southeast Asia where I lived. And so it was really interesting to me because when I heard your talk, you, you, you gave a lot of examples of serious crises and they all touched me in, in, in a really deep way because I saw them in a, in a different light. When you speak about what it's really like, it really, it really hit me because I, I, I think I'm, I'm a pretty aware person and I'm a pretty empathetic person. But boy, I tell you, the, it was heartbreaking. And, and when it was places that I knew or had been in. Yeah. And you see the worst of the worst of mankind, but you also see the best. And I try to focus on the love because if you focus on every, the death and destruction, it's just like, where, where does that lead to? And I think that even now, these last years, I just really feel hatred growing and it's growing. And and it's even kind of entered my heart and, and, and I'm just really trying to bring everything back to love because humanity doesn't exist without it. You know, it's a mixture of Babylon and Jerusalem and it's the love wins in the end. We've sat in villages all over the world when people have tried to attack us and kill us and all these crazy schemes going on and we're just there to help. But in the end, they've even like got down and just said, we're so sorry we treated you that way. And love did win in the end and I see it over and over and I know... I know we're going through a hard time in America right now and uh, we've got to come back to love because that's what it's about. Humans loving humans, one race and no walls, just coming together. And I know that sounds all like preachy and, and oh, da but it's just the truth. You know, um, I heard um, one of the candidates speaking and everyone was kind of giving her a hard time and and because she, she talked about love and getting back to love and, and the news were kind of cruel to her and all this. And then I really thought about it. I'm like, hang on, if I was up there, I'd be, I'd be saying the same stuff because right. that's what I believe in. And actually she got the best reactions from the audience when she started talking about coming back together in love. So I'm like, it's, it's really kind of strange. Interesting. She we're, resonated really well. Like yeah. nobody thinks she would be elected president. No, you know. But she resonated and her message is in, in that platform, her message is getting out and people really responded to that, right? So. Yeah, I know. Anytime there's such, you know, death, destruction, hatred, anger, shall we say evil, uh, fear, it really, it's it, like the farther the soul sees the death and destruction and the dissolution, the dissolution of, of our concept of reality, um, it really feels like the pendulum swings so far to the other side. And I know just from looking at the images of what you're doing in Bahamas, um, it's so amazing because you see these people coming out from homes, communities that are leveled. And there was one picture that struck me so deeply. It was the, um, the image, there's an image, we'll include it on the, on the site, of a little boy and he has a rusted old wheelchair and the whole 
around him, the whole scene is just leveled. It's just rubble. And he has this wheelchair and he has the, the canned food that you had given him that he put in the wheelchair. And then he had a red umbrella because it was rainy. And, and I don't know if it was you or Sarah who shared the, um, the story of, um, he said, yeah, I brought the umbrella because if the cans get wet, um, the labels will fall off and we won't know what's what. Isn't that smart? And it was like it's common sense we don't even see anymore. Right. This little boy is on this island, Sweeting's Cay, and it's gone. Everything's gone. And they held on. They were all tied together with ropes, you yeah. know, ropes to a tree for two days. Water up past their neck and the father tried to keep the kids uh, you know, their their heads above water for two days. It, the hurricane just hovered and stopped. And this guy, this kid has this biggest smile every day. He's the only kid left on the island because all the women have left with their kids and all the men have stayed to try to rebuild. And he's the only kid left. And he's got big smiles every day and he's just beautiful. Um, but common sense, I find that, you know, I'm out in the field a lot and I don't see a lot of common sense anymore, even with like the big disaster aid manuals and that and you look at them like that doesn't even make sense um the way how I all started was um I was down September 11th at, at World Trade Center and I was just trying to help here and there and collecting bodies and washing firemen's eyes and FEMA kept trying to shut us down and we're time for the professionals to take over and I'm like okay and we just look up and keep working and then after like the fourth time they just covered their badges looked around to see if it was looking and said please stay we want you to stay because everybody's needed and that became our motto everyone's needed because it's not about you have to have medical and this it's like people would have to hand out water people have to peel carrots to make us food at night and there's just a job for everyone and um i always say like OC, people with ocd um are really welcome you know get out of therapy and come with us because they're amazing at cleaning up the refugee camps and keeping everything clean you know so there's just there's just it's just a spot for everyone and i was that, telling and, molly that, yeah. that one of the things I, I learned in sort of researching you is I think this is interesting for our, our, our listeners to understand because at the end of the day, we we all want to help when something like this, our heart takes over. Yeah. But you do sort of, it, it's a little bit of this, what can one, what could I do? And one of your messages is, listen, we need armies of people to spread Nutella on bread when these, yes. when these people come in, you know, these boat refugees come in. We need people to, you know, rinse out the eyes. And it's, so I was telling Molly, it's like thousand points of light. It's like there is so much stuff that needs to get done. It is not, you know, like building houses all the time or, no. or you know, it, it is, it's the little things that, that make a really big difference. And you've found a way to mobilize an army around the world to, to, to go to these places. And it, it, it's, it's a, you know, I'm in the logistics business. It is a logistics operation of immense proportions what you're doing because you're you're rallying variable resources you know you're a disaster happens and you are rallying rallying thousands of people to do all those things that need to get done that just takes the, a little bit of that misery away for the people that are there and sometimes we have nothing to give them you know and we just come up and we hug them and we really make sure mm. we hug them for a long time they try to pull out of the hug mm. but we pull them in further and then they 
takes a few seconds or minutes, but then they just collapse in our arms. So it might be months of holding in this pressure or it might be a week or all as of the Syrian refugees fleeing from ISIS for years and they're finally safe and they just start crying in your arms and they say, this is enough, the fact that you came from your big important country to do this. And I used to think it was food and water and medicine, but I've really learned it's logistics is the most important thing and IT specialists, you know, because yeah. we get out there in Puerto Rico, a sat phone wouldn't even work the first two weeks and we had patients and we couldn't get a signal out so I started to learn ham radio but now I take IT specialists so they can try to get communications all these t sort of different jobs a film producer came once to the village and he realized what can I do I don't know what to do then he realized it's the same skills so he instead of producing a film he produced a village because it's still about raising money and rebuilding and all that so whatever you do out there there's a spot to fit you in my friends just found out my dearest friend is dying of stage four cancer mm. she doesn't have, she only has a few months left to live but i'm going to take her out in the field soon i'm going to mm. even bring her in a stretcher to walk around yes. and talk to people as her last moments and she's made that clear that she would love that to happen you know so it doesn't matter what stage of life i've had um people come in they've just had a baby you know the baby and they left the baby it's a free month year old baby they left it with the parents and they came to volunteer so there's this there's no really any excuses and and money's not an excuse either because we take care of everything on the ground you know accommodation food and everything so as long um, as you're willing to eat rice and beans for three weeks yeah and it depends what country you're in but you know some countries like like right now bahamas the only thing opened in the first week was wendy's but there was a line of 400 people down the block <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, oh, we, we usually judge a, a disaster by the Waffle House. Like all those big disasters in America, you hear over the, over the airways, hey, we've got some hungry rescue workers, where can we go, where can we go? And everyone's like, Waffle House, Waffle House. And Waffle House was in Puerto Rico and all over America. But you know how bad a disaster is you can judge by if the Waffle House is gone. So in the Panhandle, it's one of the biggest disasters I've seen on USL in 30 years, and even the Waffle House was gone. So the, you know, it's, Actually, it's, I recently read an article about this. Waffle House has yeah. a process to come up at times of, of disaster, to come up quickly. In other words, corporate, like there's a, there's a process for that, to, yeah. to be available as quickly as possible after after hurricanes and everything else. Do they actually... Yeah, and even though, even though the people work at them and their houses are gone and they're struggling, they bring them in from across the country yeah. to work that store. I think that's really cool. And I think like everybody, I'm not going to drop names, but all those big names of all those you know, places, they should have a big semi-trailer truck ready so every time it strikes, they can pull up, they've got Wi-Fi going and everyone can just have a snack or something to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes sense. And we're moving more in that direction because disasters are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we need everybody to help because we're exhausted. Alison, a lot of big corporations have like CSR, corporate social responsibility, and they do some really good work. You know, I worked at yeah. DHL and Agility Logistics and, you know, when when... Disasters happened, you know, we flew plane loads of water and our, our, you know, dropped tents. We did all kinds of really coordinated stuff. But what can corporations do? What is the, like the most valuable resource that, that corporations have? The corporations have? have the system in place. For example, we just first got our first big sponsor a few months before Dorian. And they're wine and spirits distributors called their web banks. So what they do is deliver that, but it's that they know the dock master, they have people in every country, they have the whole system in place. So instead of delivering alcohol... We're delivering aid to all their people. They helped us with a Coca-Cola truck and, and and their brewery was down and their people needed help. So it was just the same system. But I think it, um, all the big corporations should set aside time for their people to volunteer, you know, 
30 or 40 members of their company or how, how many they could cycle them in and out. At least everybody gets to do a week because they really are just so enormous and uh, we just need everybody to step up. But that's a good way they can help because they really do help. They really do good stuff. But um, it's not just a donation of time. I mean, donation of money. It's not just a donation yeah. of money. It's a donation of time. Yeah, it was interesting. I went to an event you just did and I was speaking with I'm sorry to say I forgot his name, but I know you'll know it. The man who's the head of Web Bank, Web Banks over there. Oh, Andy. Andy. Yeah. I was speaking with him, and he we were talking for a while, and he said, wow, you know, Allison's so great, and I love Third Wave Volunteers. And he said, you think it's a good partnership, right? Like, you think this is a good thing? And I said, yeah, I think it's an amazing thing. And he, and I said, I'm curious why you think it's a good idea. And he, he said, he stopped for a moment, and he, he thought about it, and he said, because we're in the business of bringing things to people in some way to give their lives more joy or to make their lives better in some way. Um, and he said, and what I realized is like this, this company will be a stronger company. It will be a more meaningful place to work if people also see that the same thing we built can actually save people's lives and can change it. And it will change the way they work and orient um, and he says, oh. and he goes, and from a business perspective, it helps us too. And he kind of laughed and he's like, but he's yeah. like, but that's the real why. And you know, what's strange. We'd be going out to the most remote islands in Bahamas and I'd sit on the island. There was two men and, and there was, we'd have all our MRA boxes ready to give them um, food so they could survive on. And they'd quietly pull me over and they, Hey, um, we've heard there's cold beer and ice in those boxes. Is that true? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's food. I'm so sorry. But every time we go back now, we take... I like cold beer and some ice in a little cooler because they're working so hard doing their homes that they, everybody wants to have a beer, <laughs> cold <Absolutely>. beer. <laughs> so we're, we're actually linked up with the right company, so they're going to start sending us some That's as well. Great. That's so sweet. That's yeah. great. Yeah, human desire, you know, goes back to the same things <laughs> no yeah. matter where in the world you go. Yeah. And sometimes those familiar things can yeah. be Yeah, and you know, the Syrian refugee camps, I would go around, they'd had nothing. And after asking for medicines for their kids, the number one thing they wanted was sunscreen, um, you know, for their skin and that. But then the, then I looked at them all and the women had the most amazing eyebrows. So they would sit there and having nothing, but they had their eyebrow pluckers and they kept perfect <laughs> eyebrows. So, you know, women are the same all over the world and we have our needs, but the deepest need that I've found is the love and you just give them a hug and then they just smile. And in the Bahamas, you know, they have nothing and you turn up at their home and they're like, hi, big smiles, welcome. What do you need? And I'm like, what do you need? <laughs> you know, so there's a special side of it. Sometimes I feel like playing Santa Claus because we give out solar lights. We walk every dark home in the mountains and that. We knock on the door and a little old lady turns up in the dark and we give the solar light and then everybody starts singing and clapping and then all the kids get excited. So it really is like playing Santa Claus. Why do you think the solar lights are so important? Oh, it's light. You know, we've got like billions of people Darkness out there scary. in the dark without electricity and light. So just, they feel safe. All the kids would go, we got light, we got light, we feel safe, we're so safe. Uh, that that and, visual yeah. of you talking when the, when the refugee boats come and you guys all lined up on the shore with these yeah. lights. Yeah. I could just imagine what a welcome or relief that was for people that have been, you know, these refugees have been out on the, in this dangerous sea. And then you tell the story, then you gave each one a, la a lantern so that they could yeah. walk the trail to where the, 
the tents were and stuff. Yeah, they would and just it, be so overjoyed. And even also when the boats tip over in the Aegean Sea, people are drowning, a lot of kids drowning. Sometimes they bring us 60 kids a night, you know. But when the water, we could, we'd throw all the lights into the water so we can see where they are. And then all the refugee camps are dark. And even walking into a little tent, there's 30 people sitting so depressed, trying to see their phones, the little light on their phone. But you come in with the lights and it just lights up their light. light and we get so much out of it too. And that's yeah. one of our missions is light up the world and we're going to continue to do that so if people want to donate lights or anything to your mission yeah third just wave dollars. volunteers look them up and you'll see the images of the people yeah. the images of the little children when you give them the light and they're just looking oh, at they so. just they freak out and it's so so beautiful and it's easy they fold up flat they're ten dollars but they last six seven years and they give like 12 hours of light at night it's just it's a magic box of hope Allison, this is a global thing though, right? A disaster happens and it happens in Sri Lanka, you start mobilizing, right? So for our audience, this is not a, you know, we're talking about the Bahamas, we're talking about New York, but you've been pretty much wherever there's a major disaster, third wave volunteers is is there and they're there quickly. Tell me a little bit about how does that happen? A disaster happens in the Bahamas last night. How do, how do things get mobilized? Well, we usually pre- prepare before that. Um, we study, you know, the earthquakes and the storms around the world, so we know when is coming. So we have a few days to prepare. So we'll get a warehouse if it's something to do with close by in the Caribbean or that. And then we start mobilizing volunteers, start setting up and collecting things, collecting food and water and that. But if it's far off, um, we have about thirty thousand volunteers around the world that have collected over the years, and we have a search and rescue, we have medical, we have non-medical. So there's different roles for people. So we'll send an initial initial rescue team in, and then they get all the the data and everything and then we try to right now I'm trying to split it up and have third wave Asia and third wave on this side of the world so we don't have to have 20 people running with $2,000 tickets all the way over there so say it happens in Nepal we can get Australian, New Zealand, Indian, Sri Lankan you know, volunteers to go and help. So I'm trying to be more tactical about it. Um, you know, the worst thing is wasting money. You know, sometimes in Haiti, an organization for mission can will come with 30 people. And that's like two, $3,000 a ticket. And th- I mean, it's really good. They have goodwill and everything. But instead of maybe 30 people, bring four builders and save that money for actually paying the locals to build, build the house and just more yeah. sustainable practices. Because a lot of the stuff people people and NGOs, and I've, been, I've made many mistakes in the past, is we think we're helping, but we, it's much more of a problem. Like people keep bringing clothes to Haiti. There are so many clothes in Haiti lining every waterway and every street, and and it ruined their clothes industry there. So people keep bringing so clothes. So the, the NGO has a, a the, sort of the NGO economy has really adverse effects. It, it, you know the oh, the goodwill yeah. can create, you know, like you say, can destroy economies. You know, solar solar you know panels from china get flown in because somebody's paying for it and the and the industry the local industry yeah. dies because of it you know as you say clothing food and stuff so there's a, there's a right and a wrong way yeah, to... You know, the old manuals don't work anymore. There's a new way of doing it. Like in Bahamas, we're, you know, we are working hard in delivering aid and food and water, but we have all these sustainable programs with the solar lights. Um, we're taking in seeds, 24 heirloom seeds to start planting food all over the Abacos because there's no food, there's no fresh food. So instead of handing continually handing out someone food in their hand, they're planting now. The Haitians and the farm, they're all planting the seeds. And so they'll have food for their future. And also we don't have a tree program and all the trees are down so they're all going to be rotting so now we have you know we're employing 30 locals to pick up the trees so they're going to be this is really good pine 
okay? So you can build houses and boats and everything with it and they're going to be so without lumber. So that's just started. And, and there's all these little sustainable programs that can be done. So that's so innovative. So this, uh, this idea of bringing in arborists and people yeah. to work with the trees instead of just At the beginning, growing not, not or a burning year later. the trees <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and them rotting, um, this can actually be used to do the rebuild. So um, it's interesting. I was speaking with someone again at your event and they said, yeah, this handicapped person saw um, the fact that all these buildings had been leveled and they said, oh, good, maybe now they'll build them so they're handicap accessible. Right. And so um, yeah. it's interesting because when we do have those moments of clearing, we can be really innovative about how we rebuild if we bring in the ideas and the infrastructure and the people who know how. So sometimes yeah. we wouldn't think of bringing in equipment to you know, turn trees into lumber, but that could actually be one of the most beneficial things that you could do to both protect the environment, to use what's already there, to cut costs and to really make a difference. Yeah, and there's been bushfires every day down there, you know, of all the wood on the ground. So there's just, yeah, there's so many different ideas we can insert into it right at the beginning while we still are doing the other side of food and water and all the basics, tarps and things. Mm. With 30,000 volunteers and and sort of presence all over the world, are you past the we arrive and the the local government and and bureaucracy is impeding us from helping? Have you found that over time and with scale uh, or... When you arrive, the governments and everything's wiped out. So they're just stranded. They just can't really do anything. But we've learned to work from the grassroots up. We work the opposite to FEMA and everybody. We go in... There's already systems in place from Rotary and Masons, and in Puerto Rico we tapped into all of the all of the clubs. We got over nine thousand volunteers from all the universities and that. So you don't have to really bring everyone in. You tap into the system, and everybody's sitting there wanting to do something. And then you work your way up. For example, in the Bahamas, we didn't tap into all the um, government system because they ended up, you know, they start to lock up all the aid in warehouses and that. And for us, we hand deliver every piece of aid door to door mm. so we knew we had to move fast and quietly and around around the system and it worked and people have got the aid and meanwhile in nasa there's warehouses full of aid locked up you know so we have to we have to it's different in every country but we just have to maneuver around the bureaucracy and red tape and keep moving fast and we never accept no for an answer there's always a solution and we keep quiet and we don't do all the crazy announcements and we're not big egotistical people. We're just about getting help to the people. So it's there's a way to do it that's very different than a lot of the big orgs that move from the top down and they just get stuck. Yeah, it's fascinating because um, whenever there's a disaster, you can always, if, if just following third wave, you can see you all show up. And I love that it's you're, you're actually going in there and delivering church to church, person to person in there doing it. You're not making... 10,000, you know, Facebook posts or whatever you're do you're on the ground doing the job. And, and that's such a good feeling as a donor to know that the money shared or the resources shared will actually get to the people that you're smart, you're on the ground, you're doing it. And it's accountability because we show them the receipt, we show them the video and the photos. You know, you send off $100 to a big organization and they have to mobilize, they have to raise 100 million before they get out of the door because they've got so many buildings and things to pay for but but we still have to do that social media to thank the donors and keep continually thanks so they'll keep donating so that's a hard part for me because social media like everybody goes to sleep at night after falling into bed but i gotta stay up for an hour or two doing the social media <laughs> doing your instagram yeah and i i just don't even well, want to be what, on social media but it's it's i, part I of do it. a lot of do a good job. i do i do a lot of work uh, or thinking and working with social entrepreneurs and and one of the things sort of one of my pet themes is the concept of social inclusion. Yeah. How do you bring the haves and the 
the haves-nots together. Um, and uh, we interviewed uh, one social entrepreneur, and she talks about the volunteers that help women in the favelas in Brazil. The volunteers are upper-middle-class wealthy people who get as much out of the, the action as the recipients. And she calls it, it's like the, it's like the, the non-medicinal Zoloft of, of, of people. And what strikes me is th this is not just about helping the victims of disasters. You've got 30,000, but probably hundreds of thousands of people where I'm going to say you've woken up the empathy gene in them. And I think when, when people, and I do think the, 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 the concept of empathy We all have it, but sometimes it yeah. needs to get woken up in us. And sometimes they say to me, oh, I want to do it, but I don't know how. I'm like, how about you get your return ticket? You get there, you're there a day or two, you don't like it, come back and then go play golf or whatever you do, and you're fine. But they can't leave. They have nothing to go back to. So once they do that, no one ever leaves. You it's life-changing. It's life-changing. They they, this is not just a one-week thing, and then they're back to being their old selves. You've changed no. them, and... And that's I, I really think this is from a from a societal standpoint, anything we can do to awaken compassion and empathy in this world, and and so much of it is academic and mindfulness. But what you do is tangible, tactical empathy awakening, you know, and I, I, I really admire that because you're creating an army of empathy, a, a, a a movement of empathy. Every time a horrible thing happens in the world, a beautiful thing happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know what's weird? They, they get back, volunteers get back, and about a month or two later they write to me. They're like, Alison, I, I, something's wrong. Something's wrong inside me. I, I can't fit back into my, my normal life. I'm, I'm antsy and I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's amazing. You're not a sheep anymore. You're not just sitting there and doing your day in, day out. You've been enlightened. You know what's going out on the world and you want to do more. And then they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. And they, we kind <laughs> I love of flip that. You're it not around. a sheep anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's because so perfect. they just get it. And, you know, there's the other side of it. Like, we get a hard time on social media as well. There's the blogs, I mean, the bots or whoever's the mean people that – It's usually women that write to me somewhere. I like they're not maybe they're not doing anything. They're sitting in in their house or something. But they're like, oh, I think you go to Haiti just to sleep with the black people, black men. What? Or I get recently, like two nights ago, someone wrote to us who's been doing a little bit of help down there and saying, oh, I haven't seen third wave on the ground. I haven't seen your aid and blah blah blah. And just starting attacking us. And we've been working our guts out since day one yeah. and delivering all of them. We we're not in the big shiny places where all the news cameras are and that. We're with really remote islands and really remote parts. So maybe that's why she hasn't seen us. But it's like really attacking us all over social media. And I just had to just not respond and just say, you know, you right. know, you know what we're doing. <laughs> but yeah. it gets hard out there, you know, I in bet that it does. social media world. I, I wanted to, I would just ask you on a personal level, how did you become this person who is the first person on the ground whenever she hears of a natural disaster or man-made disaster somewhere in the world? I don't know. When I try to relate people to to it in the sense of I'm just like a girl next door, very average, medium person that didn't get yeah, the highest totally grades, normal. didn't get the <laughs> lowest grades. No, well, my parents oh, were so missionaries yeah. in the world, so I did get to go oh, to a lot of developing countries. So I, I felt at home in the jungle or something. So I, that's where I felt very at home. But, but I don't preach. It's just really about love in action. 
and just showing them love and I don't know how I became it because I had a busy jet-setting life in New York and I would run off to Africa on safari and do all these things and all the balls and the parties and all this sort of stuff. And then I think September 11th just, just kicked me in the butt and said, hey, you know, there's really suffering people out there, all these other alternatives and rather than just kind of a lot of the shallow stuff, which I loved. I love my, don't get me wrong, I love my five-star spa days and I love my camping out in the field. There's a mixture of everything. It's a real balance. But I don't know how come I just got more and more confidence each time because, you know, you can get – when these disasters happen, you go, oh, it's so big, and then you're crippled. But you can't help everyone. We're really not Wonder Woman or whatever, all those superheroes. But if you just go to an area and say, I can help these people, and even if it's four people, that's enough. But it ends up being 10, 20, 30, 1,000, thousands, and, it, and, it, and then it ends up growing. But you get all your friends to join in. Hey, what are you doing for a week? Can you come down? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I get back from Haiti, and, and they were like – wow, you look so different. Where you been? You've been away at a spa, you know, because I've got a suntan, I lost 12 pounds and I had all these new friends and I was beaming and I'm Looking like, good, Alison. Uh, not really a spa, but you want to come back with me next time, you know? And and, and people see that, like, okay. you know, and I'm, I, I always say that, um, you know, I never have more than $100 in my bank account because I haven't been paid in 20 years, but, um, but I'm a billionaire inside and we can all be like that. You know, you don't have to... I, shave your head and chant on some hill but you can just everyone can get involved yeah, and it's so yeah <laughs> it's so it's so enriching and oh, and you can still like you don't have to be goody two shoes either you know you can still love like we all sit around and play guitars at night but everyone has a beer and relaxes yeah. and some people hook up and you know i don't know it's just fun we try to make it fun because that's what it is yeah yeah and it's it's amazing too because um you know the buddhist practice of tonglen is when you Anytime you're with someone, like all day, any day, you can breathe in the pain, their pain and suffering without them even knowing it and send them love. And sometimes, um, you know, people will say, I don't know why I just like, feel better when I'm around. And they, they don't even know why, but they feel it. And I feel like that's what you do on a global scale. You, you breathe it in. And the interesting thing is people say, well, why on earth would I want to breathe in someone else's pain? And it's like, well, the first response is there is no other if there's pain in the world, it's our pain too. And then the second part is, I think the more we do it, we start to feel that that pain brings us alive. It teaches us lessons. It, and sharing that love in whatever way, whether it's food or drink or emotional support or the hug or the feeling that somebody cares, um, that grows infinitely. So it's like, you don't even care about how much is in the bank account. You just keep doing it. And you it. forget about your own problems. Like I've taken people over there who have major problems. They think they have major problems. Then they get there and they see everything gone. <laughs> and they're like, oh my goodness, my problems are like nothing right? compared right. to this. And then matter. they forget about it and they get out in the field and they're so busy. And then we also, you don't do it to get stuff back, but the universe opens up when you're doing good. And I'll give away my last $10, but then in the mail someone will say, here's $100 for the for you, not the org, for you to help you. And things like that. And I end up falling in love out in the field you end up with like-minded people out there that are all just helping and I fell in love with my husband in deep in Haiti you know oh, tell me that story how did that happen yeah well you know the very short version I was running Sean Penn's camp um we, we went together he's a friend and ended up running this you know 70,000 person camp where they'd lost everything and they're under sheets and then someone back in Miami Albert had been coordinating all the aid and sending it all to the camp and then after a while he's saying I'm coming in what do you need and I said look nothing for 
for me, you know, just give it, just help the people. He's like, no, what do you need? So I had to think about it and I was like, you know, I, I had rice and beans every day to eat and I'm not a rice and beans person coming from Australia. And I said, you know what, I, I don't want to get scurvy. Uh, can you bring me some lemon juice? And he's like, yeah, I could do that. And I said, you know, we haven't washed in three weeks. Um, there's no water here. We're just using wipes. Can you bring a towel? So he arrives with eight to ten bottles of really big organic lemon juice and two towels. And then we just fell in love, like, serving others. And we just work in the camp, in the refugee camp. And and then that's it, you know. And, and just just fell in love like that. And it just happened instantly. So all those women out there, you know, I didn't meet him till my late 40s. So there's hope for everybody, you know, <laughs> no need for uh, online dating, just do what you love. Go yeah, just do what you love. And when you're out there doing it, you just that person just rolls up. <laughs> I love that. How do you how do you make space and sort of recharge in the middle of all this? You're running around not sleeping, not eating well, and sort of absorbing all the all the, the the energy that's going on there. How do you practice any kind of mindfulness, or how do you stay? First calm? of all, it's being present. I have to be really present when I'm out in the field, and the first five weeks is intense. But you're running on adrenaline because I usually come back and collapse for a week after it. But um, just you know, I, I do meditate. Um, gardening really helps because that's a whole meditation with nature in itself, just bringing things back to life. My dog, Mr. Oliver Underbite, my beautiful doggy. Hey, Bobby. <laughs> He's sitting next to me. He fills me up again just touching him and holding him. And there's so many different things. I'm, I do believe in a higher power. I, I do prayer. But there's a number of things, but sometimes it's just so simple, just sitting with my husband ordering in Thai food and watching a movie, you know. Um, but it's, all I've learned over all the years, it's you have to be present. Otherwise, you could have nightmares and all this sort of stuff of all the things we've seen and all the bodies we've collected. I just try to be present right now with my girlfriends having Thai food and then tomorrow I might be with a raped baby and then the afternoon we might be body collecting all day. And sometimes like in Sri Lanka, we were body collecting and then I get back to the village and it's ice cream time and then 30 <laughs> kids are surrounding me for ice cream and they don't know I've just been collecting 16 bodies but, you know, you know, have to switch and be present right there. And I think yeah. for all of us, just being present right now, I'm really enjoying talking to you and, and that's enough. And then tomorrow it's something else. And we have mm -hmm. to do that because we could be so distraught. And sometimes we live too far in the past or too far in the future that it escapes us. <laughs> right? It's like when you cling to things yeah. or push them away, that's when the pain yeah. and the suffering begins with just the presence. Yeah. Tell me about friendship. How, what does friendship mean to you? How do you... Think about friendship. Uh, friendship. I love my friends, and I think it's love. It's a different type of love than I have with my husband, but it's just a real trust and love that, that they're there, and I depend on them so much because I disappear. Sometimes I disappear for years and come back, you know. So my friends know, my real friends know that even if I haven't talked to them in weeks or months or a year, that it's right back to that very spot we left off, and that's what I need because... You know, I, I, I'm out in the field and there's no connection. There's no cell connection. There's no Wi-Fi or anything. But friendship is really important. I used to, in New York, have thousands of friends, but they were just acquaintances. And I've really learned to just have to know that that special handful that you can really rely on. What people yeah. inspire you? Do you have a hero or a heroine or do you... Do you tap into oh, it's It's changed over the years. I mean, Mother Teresa came to our to Sydney a long time ago when I was a little girl and she just told the story about how she would get down with the lowest dog or the leper and sit down and just beam them love 
And it wasn't about preaching or anything. It was about looking them in the eye and, and just giving them love because she knew that maybe they never had that in their whole lifetime. And that's what, that's what I like to do too, something like that. Uh, LeBron James, the, the basketball player, he's been inspirational. He used to live behind our house actually. And he really works with um, a lot of handicapped and a lot of you know people that and even though he's such a big player and famous and that he, he really gives back and spends time with with kids and that um and sung sung she the democratic leader of burma was a big influence on me and i know her personally but that's changed you know with uh, the rohingya refugees and mm-hmm. and that so she was a big inspiration but now i'm pretty upset about what's happening over there so you know things change i, I was the same um, way i was very i heard her speak at, at an event and i was just so so honored to yeah. have her in the room, and you're right; so it does it does change. It changes, but but the most steadfast one was my mother. She was unconditional love. You know, she just gave so much unconditional love, and she taught me about unconditional love. So that's that's what I focus on, and also my husband, he's a real inspiration to me too. So you know, they they come and go, and they change, but there's the solid ones that stay sturdy. Uh, you grew up in Australia. Yeah, I grew up in the bush in Australia. In the bush, yeah. where where? Yeah, in the in the very bush of Sydney. Um, just the very edge of mm-hmm. a really big national park and ran around barefoot and in the bush camping and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then I really loved my high heels and going to the city too and I like clothes and fashion and everything. I think it's just a mixture of everything. Um, but I just want people to know that, that they can do it too. It's like I'm really not anything that special. I just learned how to do some skills, common sense, sense of humor, bring everyone together, make it fun, and not get stuck down in so many rules. There's so many rules out there in the world, and there's, there's, rule, there's those rules we all think we have to abide by. What are the rules that really matter? Just about treating each other better as humans, you know, and love and and being respectful and... And, you know, people will tell you you can't do this, but really, can we not do it? Really? You know, is there a solution? And really think about it and not, not just being the sheep and going along with what everybody else says. Like, question it. Is that right? Is it really right? Uh, no, it's not. But why is everybody just going along with it, you know, and taking away fear? You know, it's a big trick, that four little world. And, and once you get out of that fear, that, that like seatbelt that locks you in, I vision it's kind of like floating in outer space and it's freeing and you just you just have to kind of free yourself. Nobody else is going to come free you. Right. Right. Learning about various perspectives can help us make sense of the world as it changes every day. The Great Courses Plus streaming service is an excellent resource to expand our knowledge on a variety of subjects gain valuable, reliable insights from some of the world's best teachers, help us better understand what's going on. And for me personally, I really find like the Great Courses Plus helps me stay in touch with ongoing learning. I love studying history. I also am currently taking with my son a photography class. We've been doing some nature photography during the quarantine. This is such a fantastic way to keep our minds active while staying close to home. Stream to your TV or watch as a family. Use the Great Courses Plus app to listen and learn while out in the garden or taking a walk through the neighborhood. We've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus variety of history, science, math, hobbies, etc. 
one of the courses we've been looking at lately are some of the courses on space. There's some really interesting courses looking through the Hubble telescope. There's also courses about the universe and all sorts of different aspects with space. So with the launch of the Dragon and all the SpaceX programs, it's been so much fun to augment that with the courses on the Great Courses Plus. There's so much to learn about the world, so start by signing up for The Great Courses Plus. They're offering our listeners a full month of unlimited access to the entire library, including my two courses, Building Your Resilience and I Rest Yoga Nidra, for free. So you can get these all for free for a whole month. Sign up today using our special URL to start your free month. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash molly. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash Molly. What do you, um, what would you say? I love, uh, you know, just to kind of come back to the nature of volunteering um, and that anyone can make a difference. Anyone and everyone can make a difference. Um, What do you say to people who are trying to find their way in that, their way to serve? It doesn't mean you have to run overseas too. Like I say, choose something that you're passionate about because you know when you're passionate about something, then you like you just into it and you keep working and then it grows. And it might be you know think what what do I like? I want to volunteer, but I like skateboarding, or I like to teach surfing, or I like the environment, or I love old people. Oh, I like kids. Uh, and then think of just something in your in your own area. Like you know you can go down to this in the inner city area, and they just have not even have they don't have flowers or anything so it might be just something small you get your friends to make a little urban garden in Haiti where I worked in the slums they'd never seen flowers before and I didn't know that and I'd bring them down from a whole other area and I'd put them in the clinic and they would point at them and they'd never seen flowers so some days we just get in a in a bus and we go off to find flowers you know just it's simple things it's not so complicated it really isn't, but there's, and there's always so many needs just in everybody's neighborhood, you know, and sometimes you can't leave the house because you have kids, but there's just always something you can do, and it's just mm-hmm. not that complicated. Yeah, there's suffering everywhere, but there's yeah. also something great, too, about going. Um, yeah. I know it's one of my personal rules. I've got to go to the developing world once a year. Otherwise, I lose touch with what's meaningful. Yeah. It's Actually, yeah. just a must. <laughs> like, I just have to. I feel more alive in the developing countries, you know, because it's raw. They'll tell you they hate you, they love you, they're whatever, and here's you, here's this, and here's your water, and here's this, and this is that. And I just, you feel so alive. And I come back here, and sometimes I just feel Much stagnant. More yeah, it's more honest. And we come back here, and everybody runs around in air conditioning in their cars. And sometimes they never even touch the earth. You know, they're in their concrete yeah. streets, and then they're in their houses, and and it's just, it's just. Got to get back to the way I, it was. I learned in, in mm-hmm. working in the favelas in Brazil that there's a big difference between poverty and misery. Yeah. Misery is dangerous. Misery, every life, you don't know whether you're, every day you don't know whether you're going to survive or whether your child is going to survive or you yeah. have to make a trade off that none of us have ever even contemplated. And poverty, you have a roof over your head, you have food, you're living, uh, you know, you, you have the basics. But there's a whole level beneath poverty that is scary and frightening and, and, and raw. Yeah. And uh, when you say you, you want to go to developing countries, I, I think that's, that's sort of what you, you lose touch with, one, how blessed we are, yeah. mm-hmm. but more importantly, how much need there really is. You know, you, everything's statistics. Oh, you know, 
billions of people live under $5 a day. Well, I know in Brazil there are people that make $5 a day and they have a life. They, they, they're, they're surviving. There's, yeah. there's people that don't make $5 a month, oh. you know, and um, to me that's a, it's a bit of a, a wake-up call on how we think about the human condition versus how the human condition really is. We can learn so much from them too spiritually. I go to Haiti and I'm so spiritually feel alive after I leave because they have nothing, but they have their little place and, and they're beaming and happy and everything. And I go back to New York and my friends, my really rich friends, their husbands are leaving them for young girls or whatever and they're right. all miserable. I'm like, you know, I find so many happy people, but also they, I learn, we can learn so much from them. It's not about us coming in and taking over or anything. We have so much to give each other. And yeah. I get back from Haiti and it, I have such spiritual moments there and just the old grandmother, 104, and she's beaming or hugging me. Or, yeah, so, you know, we have so much to learn from, from others and other societies, but we just got to be open to it and not lock, lock these walls and this discriminating, locking everybody out. That's not who we are. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because, like, like you said, I've seen that so many times where you'll go into a village and you, you'll you see 10 people living in a little hut with no beds. They're just sleeping on the floor and there's like a little outdoor area where they cook their food and a fire and whatnot. And, and you think, oh, I want to give them something. And yeah. the, and then the, before you can even get the word out, they're like, what can I make you? Would you like some chai? Yeah. Would you like something to eat? Would you? They don't see it at all. And that's our orientation. It's like that perception yeah. of what you have versus what you don't. Uh, and then you get back and you're like turning the light switch on and off and just thankful that the light switch and then right? you're turning the tap on, but you're trying to turn the water off quick so you don't waste mm -hmm. the water here and, and you're just happy to have a bath. And I get back and my husband's so amazing. Like after a really hard journey, he, I walk in, he's got the whole place clean. He has Thai food ready for me. He has a bubble bath going with all the candles. He sits there and washes my hair and rubs mm. my feet and my hands and and that helps. It's like, you know, you don't have you money to go to that. a spa, but he is the spa, you know. <laughs> so um, little moments like that. All husbands just, want to just be a spa for their wives. That's, that's what yeah. we want. I hope all you husbands out there true. are doing that for when your, when your wife comes home for the hard day. You know, I'm sure you're all doing it, but if not, make sure you do it. <laughs> one of the things that, that Molly and I really believe, and one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, is that we believe every person has a story. Yeah. And yet most people go through life and don't take the time to tap, you know, and I, we were in New York the other day and I, I see it again, how people treat each other, you know, like yeah. how they treat a, treat a taxi driver or a bus boy or, you know, it, it's almost with, if it's not disdain, it's complete, I'm going to ignore you because you're not in my circle. But yeah. what every person you talk to has a story, has all the things that brought them to where they are right now. And I, I got to tell you, I haven't had a bad conversation yet. And so I imagine, yeah. you know, you in, in, in the field working with the volunteers and working with the, the people that are, that are in the middle of the crisis, to some, I, I, maybe, uh, but to me it's, while it, when you say you're all squeezed out when you come, I've got to think there's a, a part of you that's filled up with the energy and the spirit of, of, of community that that happens there as well. Oh, yeah, you, just, you do get filled up. And I'm just so happy out in the field. The hardest part of the last three or four years is coming back and you turn the TV on and all the problems we have here. I'm like, oh, no, I want to be back out in the field. I don't want to have TV and listen to all these environment and political problems and all that. And 
uh, listening to the stories as actually has been really hard in the Bahamas. Every single story, like people breathing in their attic for two days with half a few inches of, of air left and 24 people breathing that and then they were saved. And one man who was in his 90s, was his, his wooden leg was washed away so he's on top of his washing machine holding on for a day, you know, with one leg and crazy stories. Oh but gosh. they tell the stories. It's healing to tell the stories. So they tell the stories and I keep saying tell and tell and talk about it and then it's healing for them. And I know I healed from September 11th, 2001 by talking about it and telling the story. Um, but then you're just filled with this love and compassion because they look at you and they've told their story and then they just want to hug. And it's just, it becomes a family, real family. And uh, so the family just keeps growing. And it doesn't matter if it's in Sri Lanka or India or Nepal or Bahamas or even in the Panhandle. It's like we have this family that's growing. And before we never got connected on Facebook at all or anything, you just never saw them again. But the Syrian refugees, all the kids jump off the boat and they're like, and they're like, they want to take selfies and they're like, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. They all find us. And now they're writing to me every day. Oh, we made it to safety. Oh, now we have an apartment in Germany. And they keep on, they keep <laughs> together. And we've never been able to link before. And even in this remote island, sometimes when, you know, in Bahamas, they, they're writing to me now too. And it's just so good to be connected in this new family. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so true. I think, you know, with everything that's happening, whether it's on the border or with war and other things, in order to, yeah. to want to keep someone out or to hate someone, it requires thinking they're different, it requires thinking that they are different than you and cultivating a sense of fear that that other person may harm you or take something from you. And the, I think the only antidote that, you know, no amount of talking, obviously talking doesn't change. I don't even think the statistics change them. I don't think anything will change until people actually get and spend time with people and see that there is, every human being wants the same things. We all want to be happy. We all want to be free from suffering. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that it was a real wake up in, in the 2004 tsunami running this hospital. We had a thousand patients a day and they would come in and they had the tiniest little scrape off their skin. But underneath it looked exactly like my skin. It was just that tiniest little layer of darker skin. But then it was like the most, you know, the same color as me. And it just really hit me. I'm like, we really just are really the same. And uh, and they just, they want to be loved. They want to help with their family. They want their kids to go to school. They want to just have some clothes to wear. Just basic things. And we're all like that. And I don't know how we get to this this place of just such hatred and disdain and they're so opposite. I mean, we've got people in Miami who we, who were welcomed in as the Cubans were welcomed into this country and now they are so abdomen about shutting everybody else out. And I just can't understand that. It just boggles my brain. And I, it's, it is just about not really being maybe educated about who the other people are and that I just, it's just, it just boggles me. <laughs> I don't even know how I to think, answer. I think people numb themselves because they don't think they can handle a lot of reality at a time. Maybe yeah. it brings up their bad feelings of all they went through and they want to block that out and they've built this new world for themselves. Or I, just, I just still just can't fathom how. No, I, I, I can't either. And I, I think I'm motivated. You know, what I told, I've told Molly this. I've probably told our listeners this a couple of times. But if nobody listens to these podcasts, Molly and I are so nourished by this because we meet amazing people who lead with their heart and they impact others. Like, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a spider network yeah. karma. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you are paying it forward a, a million times uh, and probably don't have a good understanding of how many people you impact. You probably have a good understanding, but I think it is exponentially more as to the difference you're making in the world. And, you know, we can listen in the news about all the stuff, but there's amazing work being done. And, and yeah. I, I think... Uh, you're and everybody can do it too. It's really not yeah. hard. It really isn't. It's just it's it's common sense, but it's really thinking about not too far ahead. Like we'd land, okay, we need some food and water and shelter. Oh, the whole place isn't destroyed. I saw down in that city we passed. There's a supermarket. We can get some food and we get some rolls of plastic you know, to put over so they can keep the rain out. It's really just basic steps. And all the skills that everybody does in their own jobs really get transferred over. If you've ever, you know, everybody. How are you looking at technology? Like, like how does, I mean, there's so many amazing things happening with drones yeah, and stuff like drones. that. Are you? They've been really important. Up in the Carolinas, we would drive for hours and we'd be trapped because there were, the water was flooded everywhere. So we put the drone up. We could see, oh, it's not so far, you know, and, and or we could say it's too far now. We better we better back around. But the Bahamas too, we're putting the drones up in the air to, to scan how much the area is damaged because, you know, our guys had to cut through 40 to 60 miles of electrical wires and chainsaw through Mm -hmm. streets so we were blocked we couldn't get to people so putting the drones up it could see above okay it's not so bad it's just going for half a mile if we cut through half a mile we'll know so this high all this technology is really coming into play are you able to uh to like deliver supplies yet with with, with drones um there's experimental doing with planting seeds and everything not yet but i know i've met the the man who created the drones that are actually dropping in medicines and things throughout africa and then we're in conversations to do things like that there's just so much technology and you know there's there's uh, drones that are building rope bridges now and and just just amazing amazing ways to to accelerate aid and access uh and all the eighties, all the disasters are run on WhatsApp because nothing else yes. works over there. But also social media. I used to never be into it, and someone had talked me into hating to being on Twitter. But it was like a magic genie. I would need, um, say, p- people were getting bitten by dogs, and I needed rabies treatments or whatever it was. And then one night I was sick and just exhausted and sick, and nobody could hear me. I'm in the tent, but all the generators were going. I tweet out to New York. Someone in New York tweets to the person in the tent next to me and they run in and help save me because they couldn't hear me calling out for help in the tent next door because the generators were so loud. So, you know, it became this powerful tool. And right now, even on Facebook, from the Puerto Rican disaster, the more people would start to say, oh, my mom's missing, my grandpa's missing. And and there's this whole network we'd all join together and and we'd find people just through Facebook, you know, and Mm. things like that. So it's it's become a come into play in such a big way. And it's a big magic genie of getting help out there. What are you reading these days? I, I read a lot of environment, nature books, sustainable books about, you know, the environment. Um, I have like lists of lists of books. There's a good one over there, When There's No Doctor. Where There Is No Doctor, a village healthcare handbook. Yeah, this is, I get all sorts of books going on and from art to whatever. I just try to mix it up. And uh, But I, I, I'm so, so busy and back-to-back disasters. I really haven't had time to read a lot of books lately. Um, people sending me books all the time, but I, I, I read a lot of environment books and, um, and, and food well, this is a, a book on food well about urban prototypes about, um, you know, because we're, you know, it was, we're overpopulating and we're growing and growing and growing and the food sources are getting less and less and less. Uh, so just always looking for new ways and strategies out in the field that, that, that 
break through the barriers of all the old stuff that's been done because none of that stuff works anymore. We just we need new solutions. So I, I talk to a lot of scientists. I talk to a lot of um, architects. They're really leading the way in a lot of sustainable projects and all, all sorts of different things. What are some of the sustainable projects that are inspiring you in terms of water filtration or um, habitat? Agriculture. Mainly, I'm really into this tree project, you know, these arborists from Coconut Grove and um, employing people out there. I really liked in the early days the cash for work programs of, of getting in. The, some of the big orgs had big wads of cash and employing everybody. Instead of them sitting around, poor me, poor me, get them working, get them growing, get them cleaning up their own environment and they get a little bit of cash so then they have a little bit of money for food and everything. But that's what we're trying to do with the tree recovery, employ all the locals instead of sitting around with no jobs and nothing. They get a bit of income for their family but then they're actually doing something really for the – you know, to stop the bushfires, but this beautiful pine that can be reused over and over. So just projects like that, and we still haven't hit the mark on when these disasters hit, a million people have no homes, you know, and we still have seen every single house out there and the container homes and all that, but we still haven't hit, um, I, I really try to inspire our architect friends to really design this home that a million people can get. It, it arrives, it's hurricane proof, and it's not too hot, and it maybe has solar in it, and all this sort of stuff, so it can just be set up right away, and they can live in it until they can rebuild their home. So I'm always trying to push that edge, and I've seen everything that's out there, and they're not quite there yet, and some of the water filtration, you know, there's some really good small things like the life straw and that, like we can hand to people, but we really need the big systems, but then again, they cost thousands and thousands of dollars, so you can only really put them at a church or a clinic, but people live far away, so it's hard for them to come to get water. So you know, I've seen a lot of reverse osmosis that's really working, but they're, again, they're still really expensive, and desalination units, which converts you know, the salt water to, but you know, I, I, it's still quite not there for the everyday person to have. That's why I love the solar lights. It's 10 bucks, you know, and, and people can afford it, and it really changes their life with light in their house, you know, and that's why I got so excited I was on a tent somewhere living and everyone had pitched everything to me for 20 years and that and then this light came along I was like that's the only thing that makes common sense because it's what everybody can have one not this big expensive water yeah. unit you know so I mean there's so many different projects out there that are inspired. There's a social entrepreneur in the Philippines yeah. that cuts these you know those plastic uh, Coca-Cola bottles? Yeah. He cuts them in half Famous. and he cuts a hole in the in the tin roof of these slum houses. Yeah. He puts this in and the way the light. it refracts yeah. and all of a sudden these homes have light for the first time. And yeah. that light changes everything. Yeah. Everything. You know, the, the women can work three hours more generating income. The kids yeah. can read and study. Light. Just a simple thing like yeah. like you know, how many times today have you have you mentioned the solar yeah. lantern? How yeah. what a difference that makes! Boy, talk about taking something for granted. You know, yeah. you, like you said, you turn on a light switch, and yeah. and it doesn't have to be big, expensive things. I mean, there's kids. We, I visit a lot of college, and they're inventing things. And I, or I might give them a few ideas to the engineering department, and then they come back with, yeah. And it's just simple little solutions. It's not these big, fancy, complicated mm -hmm. stuff. But that that. But really, anybody can come up with. The girl that invented the lights had problems with her kid in asthma in New York and wanted to come up with, you know, something against fossil fuels. You know, like they're all everyone's burning all the fossil fuels in those little kerosene lights, but it kills four million people a year, and then it causes thirty thousand fires. You know, and things. So yeah. it's just solutions and and pushing the edge. 
um, because we're all getting closer and closer, you know, with social media and everything, and we we know about more things than we would ever know. We would never know about Syrian crisis like a hundred years ago, you know. And right. it's interesting with like with my work, I, the two it's kind of my two projects that I work at that are my heart projects are with veterans and with human trafficking survivors, and it's interesting because when I fundraise for veterans, usually I have very little problem doing it like people donate money for veterans it it's something that appeals to people they feel like they can make a difference they understand the problem because there's been a lot of press about ptsd and you know the effects of war but when i try to raise money for human trafficking survivors it's i I can raise twenty thousand dollars for warrior cities fairly quickly i remember trying to raise 20 grand for our first um we were training human trafficking survivors to be meditation teachers a a healing program and then they would then get to become yoga nidra teachers it took me forever to raise twenty thousand dollars for that program and it's the same thing i do for the military that could be done really easily and i'm curious i want to speak it out loud because um I've been analyzing what inspires me to donate and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that of how people kind of selectively choose who they want to help and how we can inspire them to see that they can make a difference in problems. Like I think with human trafficking survivors, people say, oh, well, like it's so it's such a mess. Like can I, can we actually make a difference? And the answer and, is and the yes, absolutely. the hardest part about that, the UN statistic is one in every three women will be beaten and raped in their lifetime. And that's over a billion women right now. It's one in every three women when you walk into a room. So those people that are donating towards the military and not towards the uh, abused, sexually abused, trafficked women and that, they probably relate to it more than they even know because they were abused when they were six. I've interviewed over, must be over 30,000 women. And it's not some stranger in a nightclub. It's the father, the brother, the mm-hmm. uncle, the next-door neighbor, the doctor, the scientist, someone in power and that. But I don't know why people aren't connecting to that because it's it, the trauma may be buried so far in their life because I find fundraising really hard. Like sometimes I'll put things on my wall and really serious, good things. I get three likes. And then I'll throw something on there just for fun and then I get 5,000 likes and yeah, something totally. silly, you know, and that. But it's people have to really connect to it. and I think they feel like we can trust the military. Maybe that's why they donate to that. But trafficking, maybe it's just so far removed or they don't want to know. They shut down. They don't want to know because they maybe were abused when they were six or they just, it's so locked inside of them or even men as well, you know. I heard a conversation on the radio abused. today about, um, you know, the NBA having this problem with with China and and, you know, and people are up in arms that LeBron James hasn't said any hasn't said anything. And 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 one person said, people pick their causes. Yeah. You can't have 10, 15 causes. People typically have two things they believe strongly in. And it's not a matter that they don't think other things are important, but people vest themselves in different ways. Uh, yeah. and I and when I listen to that, I, I that's true. Like, you know, I give to the police and the firemen. But I get all kinds of calls for stuff. But you, you make choices. Yeah. And I think the choice is often not about not valuing one thing. It's about yeah. how can I make an impact? I can't make an impact yeah. everywhere, right? Yeah. So that's um, interesting. How can I make an impact? I think that's a really good point. People need to feel like they can directly make an impact. And and they want to see the impact too. Gone are the days when you just send money off blind. People want to know where their money got to. And don't don't rush it off even to all these big orgs that are saying you know we need all your money like if you raise ten thousand dollars get on a plane a two hundred dollar plane and go to haiti 
and look around and think, okay, I want to I want to work with this orphanage and uh, and then work on a, a little story. I mean, and, and helping. You don't have to just rush it off blindly. This, uh, you know, in um, Bahamas, strangely enough, that we were all shocked that people are donating more than any other disaster. Everybody has some sort of beautiful link to the Bahamas. Maybe it's their sanctuary or they've been there and they know how beautiful the people are or something. But more than other disasters, there's just outstanding amount of people stepping up. We've had over 6,000 people sign up to volunteer on our website. 6,000 people. Amazing. That doesn't usually happen after disasters. You know, usually about 1,000. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's what people connect to. And I think people are also tired of the money going off and they don't see it, you know, or they don't see a difference. Um, so they're really choosing. And, and back when I started this, like 20-something years ago, none of my friends had a charity or anything. But now everybody has a cause and everybody has a charity, yeah. which is great, sure. but we're all trying to raise money from each other. And then they're like, no, because I have my charity. And every time I go for the checkout, they're like, well, you have you know, $1 for, your, um, for this boy's yes. hope or whatever. I'm like, I'm sorry, I have three charities. I'm sorry. You know, but, so that's a good sign in the world. And uh, yeah. <laughs> But it's really hard to raise money and it really drains me and it's hard. And I'm just so thankful that we were able to raise a good amount for this one because it's such a lot of work to be done down there. Well, and, and I think people like yourself and social entrepreneurs, they don't, it's a necessary evil to, to raise money. Yeah. Um, you want to be spending all of your time doing, what, doing your purpose, but the reality of it is it, it's, it's hard and time-consuming work uh, but I, I, Molly, I don't think it's because people care about one thing over another. I, I think uh, people, you know, even me, with, with when I started working with Ashoka, I was available for every social entrepreneur who wanted a half hour with me, and I felt that that's sort of the equivalent of giving $5 here, $10 here, $20 here, or do I give $1,000 here yeah. where I know where that work is going. I know the impact it's having. I'm personally involved in that. I, yeah. I prefer to do that. I, I've gone away from from the, the scattergun approach yeah. uh, to saying I'm going to vest myself in a few causes and I'm going to put all of me in that. You know, I'm going to put my time and my time. money and my, time. my emotion mm -hmm. into that. And I, I think... Uh, that's I think that's a big, big part of that. Uh, yeah, and that's why we were always... Up until about six years ago, it was just a donation of time. So we didn't have the headache of money and we showed how to do it without the money. We always, we built a whole whole village in Sri Lanka just by asking every all the volunteers, mom and dad and uncle, putting in $20, $40 and it got built in six months. We're not the other big organizations that had even built one. Yeah. You know, and it's not about ego and, oh, we built more than you, but it's just showing it how we've done. Because we did make a film, um, just, you know, panning around the camera for years and years. We had this all this footage and we ended up making this little documentary that actually went to Khan and Bone and Sean, everyone walked the red carpet with us and that. But it was just like, just all done, pieced together by volunteers and mums and dads and uncles and just everyone coming together. And I could have made in that film and shown all the big orgs that were doing a lot of bad stuff on the island and hadn't done anything. And even on their websites, they said, we have built 25,000 homes, but I drove the whole island, there was nothing. And they had pictures of our houses on their website. So mm -hmm. I could have gone that road, but no, it wasn't about that. It was just showing how we did it without the money. 
And we've only really been raising the money the last five years because the solar lights do cost money, even though we get them at basic costs, you yeah. know, to, to take out to the world. But then we do have some things we ha- we need to buy from water filters or whatever. But we really, I love the whole concept of a donation of time. And even on your computer, look, we need a lot of home-based women. We have this girl, Kristen, in the middle of Ohio, and she's been running all the disasters in the orgs, and she gets up at 2 a.m. and her husband's in bed, and she goes, okay, who's on the channel? Okay, now we need a boat going here and there. And she's just doing this all from her farm. Wow. She's the most amazing person, and then we need lots of those. So if you're a mum out there or a dad or whatever, and you you work at home or you can only just give a few hours at night, you can lock in as one of our home-based people, and you, you help keep us all together on the ground. Because on the ground, we can't keep in touch, but sometimes you can make a call out to another country or state, and they get the message, whereas people near us can't get it. So then they'll relay the message, or they'll do the bank account, or do the the crowd rise, or something that we need help with. You know, it's, you don't even have to even leave your house. <laughs> What, what do you feel is next for you, Alison? What, what do you feel inspired to create? I just learn a lot. I've just learned so much of how, about happiness and happiness inside and about happiness and life and the real rules of the world that I really want to share it on a big scale. That's why I did the TED Talk. You know, I'm not a very good talker or anything. but You're great. You're but, a brilliant talker. But I just want to just, just go on this higher scale and talk to people in huge numbers and just share what I know because I know that their lives can be changed. So I'm just kind of mm-hmm. looking for higher platforms to talk about it. Um, if anyone's out there, you know, come and talk at your school or university or something. What do you mean if anybody's out there? We're going to have millions of listeners in <laughs> yeah, this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know, this is your platform, <laughs> yeah, Allison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just uh, I really want to spread the good news around the world and just push this hatred out and bring back love and, and have some good kumbaya conversations thank you so much for taking this time to be with us and share that and please everyone we never ask for anything on this podcast but i'm asking you now if you want to go to thirdwavevolunteers.com or dot org oh dot com dot com okay it is a non-profit thirdwavevolunteers.com and come with us and it's not just about money it's donate money donate time what else anything else your hat no don't be scared don't live in fear. Just donate some of your your heart, and it, you'll you'll end up exploding in this amazing new adventure and future. And you'll be shocked at why you hadn't done it earlier. <laughs> but it's mm. never too late. So come on, join the community of thirty thousand. We will Thank see you. you there. Thank you so much, Allison. Yeah, We're wonderful. with you all the way. Thank you. Our podcast, Conversations Matter, is produced by Amalia Briggs. Our sound engineer is Matthew Tucker, and our amazing sponsor is The Great Courses Plus. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you.